Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, folks. It's Annie here and... And Kim. Yes, that's right, on this cold and chilly morning. Well, it's not that cold and it's not it's that chilly. It's quite fresh. I think fresh is the... Uh, the proper word for it. Yes, the nice word for it. Yeah, although, of course, it is dark. <laughs> so if you're snuggling under your doona and listening to Solidarity Breakfast, then uh, you're the lucky ones. <laughs> and uh, this morning, we're, uh, we, went, we actually had the good fortune to talk to Julian Burnside about the uh, issues that have been brewing over the, the establishment of the Australian Border Act. Yes, and you'll all be very disappointed to hear that there's no hysteria or no jingoism. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, when they inaugurated the new commissioner of the Australian Border Force, that uh, our illustrious leader was uh, very heavy on the God blessing. There was a lot of God blessing, apparently. Oh, really? That Catholic, it's a bit early for that, I feel, in the morning. <laughs> That's right. A lot of God blessing, and apparently it sounded almost like we were on a war footing. Were they crossing themselves as well? <laughs> no, extraordinary. But anyway, and later on, uh, we've, of course, we've got uh, Rank and File, and uh, Kevin Healy's going to wrap up the week with This Is The Week That Was. And uh, we also caught up with Noah Basil, Dr. Noah Basil from uh, Macquarie University, who uh, has a chat about... Uh, Greece, which uh, is uh, an, an eminent uh, success or disaster, apparently. We'll find out tomorrow. We'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> time and place, time and place. And uh, he also uh, goes on to talk about uh, the uh, rank, uh, the ramping up of fear across the world in order to uh, maintain uh, the uh, foundations of uh, capitalism across the world. Well, Greece is a perfect example of that at the moment. Even our media is going nuts. You can't really believe what you hear in it. No, exactly. And uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating to uh, because, as he points out, if the Greeks were to actually move and succeed, uh, move away from the IMF uh, uh, prescriptions and uh, maintain uh, some kind of quality of life, then it might be a, a clarion call to others who wish to want who want to get out from under. Yes, you can really see that this is all about politics, not actually about economics. Mm. At 17 seconds after 8:15, on the clear, bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. In the 
August 6th and 9th mark 70 years since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6th at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. Bookings at ICANW.org.au. Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. Yes, that old furphy hasn't died a suitable death, nuclear warfare. Yeah, I know, it's incredible. It just seems to keep going like some sort of zombie. Yeah, well, um, one of those energizer batteries. <laughs> it's even scarier than zombies. <laughs> it's even scarier than zombies. Uh, anyway, let's uh, proceed with our little chat with Julian Burnside. Uh, you might uh, realise that uh, there were... Um, uh, doctors and other professionals working with refugees uh, put out an open letter to uh, the Prime Minister, the Immigration Department uh, uh, Minister, and also uh, it's not called Immigration any- anymore, it's called Im- Immigration and Border Security. I should get my uh, t- titles right. <laughs> <laughs> my titles correct. And But they also sent the open letter to Bill Shorten, the uh, leader of the Labor Party, uh, which is an interesting and sobering thought, uh, saying that uh, they did the government to prosecute them for doing their job, uh, ex- uh, making it clear to the public that there were abuses going on in the refugee detention camps. Now, the new Act uh, has um, things in it that uh, give the impression that p- uh, people who divulge procedural uh, activities within the department could be open to prosecution and uh, actually uh, incur the penalty of two years jail. They were sending out an open letter saying that uh, they were prepared to do their duty to humanity. So anyway, we, we contacted Julian Burnside, who is a refugee advocate and uh, human rights uh, advocate uh, and to find out what his take is on it. He's also, of course, a QC, so he's eminently qualified, uh, qualified. <laughs> to explain legally. The new Australia Border Act uh, was inaugurated and there's been a lot of concern about uh, the uh, issue of disclosure clauses in that particular Act. Can you talk to that? Yeah, the Australian Border Force Act, so far as presently relevant, sets out... Um, who is uh, an entrusted person, and basically that's anyone who works for the Department of Immigration or for a contractor to the department. And it says, in essence, that if an entrusted person discloses any information that they uh, learn in their capacity as an entrusted person, then it's a criminal offence to disclose that information, and it's punishable by two years' jail. Now, the the government has said that, uh, oh, you know, this is just being inflammatory, that, uh, in fact, there, there are uh, public interest uh, laws and whistleblower laws which would protect people uh, if they need to actually disclose issues that are happening within uh, uh, refugee camps and other areas in the Immigration Department. Do you think that that's true? Um. It is, but it's very worrying that they say it because they've apparently overlooked that Section 48 in the Australian Border Force Act um, operates to 
provide a degree of protection. And if they point to other whistleblower legislation, it suggests that they haven't quite understood the, the act that they've just passed. And, and, and that's always a, a bit of a concern. Um, because Section 48 says, and I'm just abbreviating it, but it says that if a person um, discloses relevant information um, with a reasonable belief that that disclosure would reduce a serious threat to the life or health of a person, and they make the disclosure with the purpose of reducing that threat, then that's a complete defence to a charge. Now, that's actually more, slightly more generous defence than you would get under the Commonwealth whistleblower legislation. So I'm not quite sure why they're pointing at the whistleblower legislation because the act they've just passed also contains a what you might call a whistleblower defence. It's uh, interesting because... Uh when looking into this entire issue, uh, not only is it incredibly worrying because, of course, for uh, medical people and people who work in other professions uh, that will be working with uh, refugees uh, under such stressful situation, uh, the code of ethics that they work under must always bow to the law. So they're in an invidious position, aren't they? Well, that's right. Um, so to take a, a classic instance, if, if a health worker becomes aware that a child has been sexually abused, they have a, a legal obligation to report that. And if they don't, they commit a criminal offence. But in the detention system, if they report it, they commit a criminal offence. Now, that's crazy. You know, you'd really need to be persuaded that there's some good policy reason why... Uh, for example, child sex abuse should not be reported if it happens inside immigration detention. But, but there's more to it than this. I think the whole purpose of this legislation is not to prevent disclosures because, in my opinion, it will not prevent disclosures by health workers acting responsibly and in accordance with their code of ethics. What it will do is frighten people into thinking, well, I don't want to be a defendant in a criminal prosecution. I don't even want to be an acquitted defendant in a criminal prosecution. You know, the fact of being prosecuted is enough of a threat for people to think that they'll just keep quiet instead of disclosing things that, um, that really shouldn't be happening at all. Now, it's that chilling effect that worries me a great deal. And the reason I've come to the view that the chilling effect uh, may operate is that I've had a lot of people, a lot of health workers contact me in the last uh, six or eight weeks, all expressing concern about um, a conflict between what they think they should disclose and what they understand the act as, as meaning. And I've said to all of them, well, look, if you get prosecuted, I'll arrange a really terrific pro bono defence team for you. And that's been very reassuring for them. Um, but even so, some say, well, look, you know, that's all very well, but, um, you know, being a defendant in a criminal prosecution is a pretty worrying thing. Um, is there some way of avoiding that? And there's, there's no good answer to that. It sounds quite a lot... Well, reminds me of the sedition laws with journalists where you end up... Well, they found that you end up with an incredible amount of self-censorship, even beyond what you could be possibly charged with. That, that is exactly right. That's the chilling effect that I'm talking about. And self-censorship 
in an area as sensitive as this is um, is very worrying because frankly one of the reasons <clears throat> the government um, is is putting most asylum seekers offshore is to hide what is going on because <clears throat> I think most Australians would be horrified if they knew what was going on in our detention centres and and I suspect that in future years um, when we regain our senses and stop behaving like this a lot of people will say oh my goodness we didn't realize this was happening I think um, that worries me as well because it seems like all these people who are at the moment in this dilemma of their ethics their professional ethics you could see these people being turned around and blamed in some sort of royal commission they always like to target the little people instead of the people who are giving the orders I agree with that. Um, I, I think that is a real risk, and I hope, I hope that um, health workers will be strong enough um, to disclose things which they think um, are terrible. Because frankly, if you disclose what is going on, that reduces the um, risk that it will continue going on, and that almost by definition reduces the threat to the health of people held in detention. Reforming the system of detention. Is, um, is probably the most effective way of reducing the threat which it poses to the health of people held in it. Now, can we look at that uh, system that's being created by the uh, federal government? Uh, this on, we, didn't, we don't just have the enabling legislation, the uh, Australian Border Act. We also have, of course, a whole new police force that's been created by the federal government called the Australia Border Force, which sounds like something from Boys Own, I'll have to say, except that it's a nightmare. <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, it's like they've put us on war footing. Uh, these people are supposedly in charge of the sea, the waterways, the border security, sovereign borders and detention centres. Uh, and not only are they, this, is this law being created to criminalise professional people working in those areas, but it's a, obviously an, a further effective method of criminalising the uh, refugees themselves. But the thing that's most interesting, and I'd like you to comment on, is this uh, justifying their actions by the creation of institutions and separating the government from its democratic uh, responsibilities. Yeah, look, I, I agree with uh, everything you've just said, and I think it, it actually focuses attention on the key problem at the moment. Uh, leave, leave aside, you know, the idea of boys with toys, um, you know, marching around in those rather grim-looking black uniforms that we saw in the press yesterday. Um, the, the the really the real problem that's going on in Australian politics at the moment is that a very unpopular and I think largely incompetent Prime Minister um, has decided that the best way to save his, his own position is to make the country frightened and to offer them protection. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an old and very well-recognised political ploy and it's usually very successful. So he's drumming up um, the fear of terrorism. He's uh, militarising practically everything to do with society and all of this is calculated to make everyone feel um, oh thank goodness he's helping protect us he said the other day he said the other day on the news that um, it was necessary to keep Nauru open in order to protect our borders well now that is insane 
it's insane for at least two reasons. First of all, the obvious reason, Nauru is never going to be a threat to Australia's borders. But second, um, refugees are not a threat to our borders either. They're not a threat to us in any sense at all. Um, what we fail to recognise is that refugees um, who are brave enough to risk their lives on little boats trying to get here to escape the same terrorists we're fighting in the Middle East, people with that sort of courage and initiative aren't a threat to us. They're an opportunity. And we really ought to be using that opportunity and making the best of it rather than hiding under our beds in fear of them. How it's Im- crazy. It is. How important do you think the ideological cultural war that seems to be happening in the media at the moment is to backing up Abbott's agenda? Oh, pretty important, I would say. You know, I mean, the, the episode on Q&A um, the other week, the, the government's response to that, which struck me as being way over the top, is an interesting way in which they can help control the media so as to keep the upper hand in what you call the culture wars. And I think I agree with that description. Uh, it means that their message is the one that's going to dominate, and their message, unfortunately, is based on a lie. You know, and the lie is, um, we're protecting you, we are making you safe. There's a, there's, a very interesting, there's a very interesting case that happened in the House of Lords in Britain um, in, I think, the mid-2000s. The English Parliament had passed a law which said that if a person is a refugee, which means, of course, they can't be removed from the country, um, if they're a refugee and they're also a suspected terrorist, then they could be detained for up to 12 months. Um, it's interesting that <clears throat> that created such a, a reaction because, of course, in Australia we detain refugees who aren't suspected of anything at all for years on end. In any event, so here we have a law which says, OK, you're a refugee, which means you can't be removed from the country, but we think you're a terrorist, so we'll lock you up for 12 months. Now, that, <clears throat> on the face of it, contradicts the English Human Rights Act, which is based on the European Charter of Human Rights. Um, And so the question went to the House of Lords, does this breach the Human Rights Act? And uh, eight to one, they said, yes, it does breach the Human Rights Act and and it can't survive. But one interesting argument that was run was that there's a get-out clause in the Human Rights Act in Britain which says that you can breach the, the promises in the Act if that is necessary in order to preserve the life of the nation. So that's the key phrase, preserve the life of the nation. And one of the law lords, Lord Hoffman, ended his judgment by saying that the life of the nation is less threatened by terrorism than it is by laws like these. (laughs) And that's a very, very powerful idea which we need to be thinking about in Australia at the moment. We're doing all these extraordinary things, ostensibly, to protect us from a threat of terrorism, Um, But what we're doing is handing terrorists a victory by by bringing into force laws of a sort which they might impose on us. That's a very sobering thought, I have to say. Uh, And it's it's almost too sensible for uh, what's going on at the moment in Australia regarding refugees. I mean, we have a very small amount of people who we seem to selectively want to terrorise um, at an ex- very expensive rate. It's very, very expensive. We have now got a new police force and the government is protecting itself by uh, giving out um, uh, 
uh, tenders to uh, international companies, international companies to supply services like security, medical and other arranges of services to uh, um, defend us from this small group of people called refugees, as well as paying off company, uh, countries to keep our refugees. Um, what have you got to say about that? I mean, in, in the relative cost of uh, t uh, running that system compared to, say, integrating refugees into our community? Yeah, well, look, I've, I've got an alternative. First of all, can I say, the, the idea that all of this is being done to protect people from drowning is complete nonsense. I just don't believe it. It's a flat-out political lie. Um, and there are many arguments that support that position, but the main one would be this. Um, we say we're worried about people drowning, so if they don't drown, we punish them. You know, what sense does that make? In any event, um, going to your, your point, I agree, and I think there's an alternative that would make a lot more sense. Let's, let's say, okay, people will continue to try and flee for safety. We know that in the last 15 years, about 94% of all boat people have ultimately been assessed as genuine refugees. So let's suppose, okay, let's say we're, we're going to close down the offshore idea. We're going to close down the brutality of the detention centres in Nauru and Manus. If people, if people come to Australia without an invitation, um, by all means, detain them initially. I do not believe in open borders, okay? So we have initial detention, but limited to one month, and use that one month of initial detention to do preliminary health and security checks, nothing more. Then at the end of that one month, release them on an interim visa with four main conditions. And those conditions would be, first of all, they have to stay in touch with the immigration department so they can't just disappear into the community. Second, they are allowed to work. Third, they're allowed full access to Medicare and Centrelink benefits. And fourth, crucially, until their refugee status is finally decided, they must live in a specified regional town or city. Now, you know, the regions are suffering for lack of population. Their population is drifting slowly to the coastal capitals. And so this would, in a small way, reverse that trend. But let's do some numbers at the risk of being very dull. Let's assume that the biggest arrival rate in the last 30 or 40 years becomes the new normal. I mean, you know, the medium-term average arrival rate of refugees in Australia is about two or 3,000 people a year. But it peaked in 2012 when 25,000 people arrived. Now, let's suppose that becomes the new normal. Very, very unlikely, but let's, let's just pretend. And let's suppose that every single one of them remains on full Centrelink benefits for the whole time. Also, incredibly unlikely because they're highly motivated people. What would that cost us? Well, that would cost us, uh, the federal government, around about $500 million a year. But of course, all that $500 million would be spent in the economies of regional towns and cities, um, you know, on accommodation, food, clothing, that sort of stuff. So $500 million a year, even on these extreme assumptions, but it would do good for the refugees who are being treated properly, and it would do good for the economy of the towns and cities where they are living. What are we spending now? $5,000 million a year to be brutal to them. Now, I would have thought it's a no-brainer that saving $4,500 million 
and our national reputation and avoiding damaging people who have got the courage to flee persecution is probably a good idea. I think, too, that those numbers, the way that they don't add up, it shows that actually this is about an ideological agenda because, you know, the government has this incredibly, as you say, well, has a very unpopular program. It's not just that it's unpopular, but it's not putting the services into rural communities or any of those things. Um, It's trying to take money away from the welfare state. And it seems to me that politically what's happening with the refugees is a big distraction and a way of dividing the rest of us. Uh, What do you make of the political motivations for the refugee policy? Uh, Look, the political motivations, and I'm no political commentator, but my take on it is this. Um, Our harsh approach to boat people started in 2001 with the Tampa episode. The Tampa episode was explicitly political. John Howard was trying to win back some Liberal supporters who drifted across to One Nation. It was purely political. Now, the the judgment in the Tampa case was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September 2001. And eight hours later, of course, we, we, we... learned of the attack on America. Um, That changed things dramatically because all of a sudden uh, the politicians started describing boat people as illegals. Um, And all of a sudden you didn't have Muslims, you just had Muslim terrorists. And all of a sudden you didn't have refugees, you just had Muslim refugees. And the the whole question of boat people became highly politicized and tied up with a dread of something like September 11. Uh, it's all it's all false because, frankly, um, you know, ASIO have said no uh, suspected terrorists have ever come to Australia as boat people, and they likely never will because uh, they can they can get they can fly airfares and dodgy papers. Um, but it's an easy sell, you know. If you make people frightened and tell them these people are a threat to you and we're going to protect you from them, that is that is effective politics. Shocking policy, but effective politics. Is it ominous that the uh, letter that was uh, released by about 10, uh, signed by about 10 health workers in relation to the passing of the laws, up July the 1st they published a letter saying that, that despite these laws they will brave, they dare the government to prosecute them to uh, about... Uh, uh, doing their uh, honest job, that they sent the letter not just to the Minister of Immigration and Borders and the Prime Minister, but also to Bill Shorten. I'm glad they did that because, to be honest, um, <coughs> Labor has not uh, distinguished itself in this area. In fact, they've been profoundly disappointing. And, you know, if we really wanted to see the situation change, then it would be necessary for. Um, there's 70% of the public or thereabouts who get their news through the Murdoch press. It'll be necessary for them to understand these people are not illegal, they're not criminals, they're not a threat to us. Now, one way that could be achieved is by the leader of the opposition standing up in Parliament and saying clearly it is false to call these people illegals, they aren't a threat to us. Now, I've yet to hear an opposition leader do that. They have gone along with the 
with the dominant narrative of the coalition since the time of Tampa. And it is the, one of the greatest failures of the political system in Australia that I can think of. Um, it's, a, it's a tragedy, to be honest, because the whole country, this country is now seen overseas as cruel and selfish because of the way we treat boat people. And that's been done because there has been no effective political opposition uh, to correct the record and to, um, you know, it's, it's the coalition who's... A, spend all its time calling these people illegals uh, and creating the sense that we need to be protected from them. But the only reason they've achieved that result is because the Labor opposition has been hopeless in contradicting it. And in fact, the Labor, the Labor Party, when in government under Gillard, um, reintroduced the Pacific Solution. And remember this. Here's, some, here's something to chew on for the day. Remember the September 2013 election. It's the only election in Australia's political history where both political par both major political parties have tried to win support by promising cruelty to a group of human beings. And that's dreadful. That is just shocking. Just imagine if they had been promising cruelty to animals. Imagine if they'd been saying, we'll make sure that the live animal export trade inflicts as much pain on animals as possible. That would not have won them any votes. But promising cruel treatment of asylum seekers was seen to be a vote winner. And the fact that both major parties bought in on that political possibility, I think, is, is the great disgrace of this nation. And that was uh, Julian Burnside uh, talking about some significant changes on July the 1st. Now, July the 1st, of course, is the end of the, econ uh, the uh, tax year. <laughs> yes, and uh, now we're moving into the uh, new era of the Australian border force. As someone said, it sounds a little bit fascistic, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It all sounds very, very terrifying. I imagine that there will be many, many flags probably around the whole country. Well, that's actually that was a talking talking point. I'm glad someone started this up. Uh, it's but there's a a little Facebook skirmish about how many flags uh, does uh, Tony Abbott need to be able to do a public announcement. Apparently, the last on the last count, it was ten flags. I know. And how do you deflag? How do you come down from <laughs> ten flags? I know. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and it's time for Rank and File. No, yeah, Rank and File Radio. And welcome to another edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And I'm the presenter of today's program, Marcus Harrington. In the second half of the show, we will go to the third part of the interview with Graham Haynes to discuss the Robe River dispute, a dispute that took place in the Pilbara region of Western Australia in 1986-1987. But first, we will take a look at the latest attacks on the CFMEU. Recently, the militant CFMEU was ordered to pay $3.5 million to the building company uh, Grocon over a blockade of several of its sites in Melbourne, including the Maya Emporium project in 2012. On top of the $3.5 million, last year the CFMEU was fined $1.25 million over the protest on the Maya Emporium Melbourne CBD site in 2012. The construction workers were fighting for the right for a safe workplace and to elect their own safety representatives on Grolo jobs. 
Grolo was ordered to pay just $250,000 after a wall on its building site in Melbourne collapsed, killing three people. At around that same time, a crane driver was found dead on the Maya Emporium project. Also, workers and their unions are once again under attack from this conservative Liberal government. Yet where is the inquiry into companies that kill workers on the job? At a rally in support of the Grolo workers, ETU State Secretary Troy Gray called for the introduction of industrial manslaughter legislation. go to the third part of the interview with Graham Haynes on the Robe River dispute. And in this time, with the workers still uh, locked out, there was a ship uh, waiting to leave Cape Lambert, as you mentioned before, with iron ore from yeah, Robe River. Well, that's where it went from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, while 1,100 people were locked out, uh, there was a very large ore carrier tied up at the Cape Lambert uh, port facility on the jetty. And... Uh, and to let it go, because they're, they're like floating islands, these things are about 200,000-plus tons. Okay. Uh, very large tides, and you need a, a fair degree of expertise uh, for very skilled tug crews to be okay. able to get these uh, these ships into the channel and, and away. So uh, they put it to us that we supply a crew, because at that stage, the Siemens Union would not walk through our picket line. Okay. So the argument was put to the officials, and the officials put it to us, that we should supply a crew to allow them to take the ships through away. And the convoluted logic that followed that was we were going to get brownie points in the media for doing it, and that it would be the ship would be loaded with good Australian iron ore, not that terrible muck that comes from, uh, from Brazil. Okay. Uh, she was one of our competitors. So, um, you know, without going into the uh, sort of language that uh, wouldn't be prohibited on the radio, <laughs> we told them in no uncertain terms uh, what they could do with that. OK, that was and, at a uh, mass meeting, was it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. We, we told them that. So they convened a meeting of the delegates from all over the Pilbara at the, at the Karatha uh, Hotel. <laughs> and they had the Trades and Labor Council secretary there, and he came up. He ran the same argument that we should let the ship go. And again, in, uh, in language you wouldn't hear on the average Sunday church service, uh, we, uh, we told them what to do again. Uh, so a, a week later, they, they hit us with everyone. They had Simon Crean and uh, Jack Marks and you know, all the state secretaries all came up <laughs> and uh, basically lambasted the conveners and the delegates and uh, they were told that they were agent provocateurs and they were, uh, you know, people that are going to destroy the union movement <laughs> if we didn't let the ship go. OK. So by that stage, um, they had enough people in the crowd nervous. OK. Uh, and, uh, you know, with, with, against our, our best wishes, uh, they were able to talk uh, the crowd into, into allowing a crew to let the, the ship go. And that really was, uh, I guess, one of the turning points in terms of who had the upper hold in this dispute. It was, it was a concession that we were never going to get back from. And it was after this time that the, the company Pico Walls and after more hearings in the Industrial Relations Commission, uh, they terminated the entire workforce? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, uh, they sacked a lot of us. And uh, again, that uh, had uh, a, a, an impact in terms of, um, well, we were fairly well united. But of course, as the pressure in the media campaign came out, an agreement was eventually concocted between Simon Crean and Charles Copeman okay. uh, without uh, any consultation with the rank and file. Okay, so with the company... Uh having terminated the entire workforce, uh, then turned around and offered that same employment back to the workers, was it? No, 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 it wasn't. You see, uh, it, uh, there was no reinstatement, it was re-employment. Okay. But the re-employment was on their terms and conditions. They maintained the same rates of pay, but what they wanted to get, they wanted to get rid of 180 people without actually playing redundancies. Okay. So what followed on this victorious return to week, work, which was paraded by some uh, state officials as a victory for the workers, was anything but a vic victory for the workers because uh, the conditions that, we, that the workers now worked under were, were abs absolutely dreadful. Okay. Um, they could put workers wherever they want and, uh, and uh, work them... Uh, in any way at all, but the, the uh, 200 uh, so-called restrictive work practices were gone. They could uh, they could do pretty much what they liked. Okay. And um, to get rid of people without paying redundancy, they set up like uh, special work squads called the Grot Squad and F Troop and you know squads like that. And if you if you were an activist, you'd find yourself in one of those squads and you'd be given demeaning work okay. to do, designed to, uh, you know, humiliate and, uh, and eventually uh, get you to, uh, 
to, to resign. And, of course, that's what the, a war of attrition then occurred, where uh, they not only got rid of 180 people, they got rid of 400 people. OK. And, and nearly tripled their production. And was it through a, a landmark decision that was handed down which altered um, an historical clause about abandonment of employment which enabled them to do that? <laughs> yes, well, that's right. Um, the company claimed there was a clause in the industrial agreement at the time. The companies up there operated on industrial agreements which basically were framed on the relevant award okay. or awards, and, uh, but they, were, they had enhanced rates of pay in them. But one of the clauses that they had in these uh, industrial agreements was an abandonment of employment clause, well, the purpose of which was to prevent people going on a, a long weekend and extending it to you know a week or two. Okay. So the clause basically said that if you left your employment without permission of the boss for more than a week, you were deemed to have abandoned your employment. Pico took it to the commission. Well, or said, you know, if you go on strike for more than a week, yep. you've, uh, you've abandoned your employment. Now, the matter went to the commission, and the commission disagreed with the company, so the company took it to the full bench uh, under an appeal, okay. and the full bench also ruled that the company was wrong. However, Pico would continue taking it through the legal processes, and if necessary, all the way to the High Court. But in this particular instance, they eventually got the decision they wanted out of the Industrial Appeals Court, which said, yes, now, the Industrial Appeals Court is, uh, is not, it's a, it's a civil type of court. It's not, okay. a, not a court underneath the Arbitration Act. It's made up of judges who, uh, who basically took the view that if you went on strike for more than a week, you'd abandoned your employment. Now, what that really meant was that any time the workers then decided they were going to take action because of the, uh, the dreadful uh, campaign of harassment that they were uh, conducting on the workforce, yep. um, the union officials would come up and warn the workers that if they took industrial action, they'd be sacking themselves. So that was an interesting uh, use of the, uh, the new definition. Okay. So the workers then uh, returned to the job until December, but tension remained between the uh, workers and uh, the new management? That's right, and, uh, and uh, basically um, we, we were on a hiding to nothing from about that point onwards because uh, uh, we we'd now had uh, orders instituted against us. We had a, a state Labor government, a okay. federal Labor government, and union officials pretty much all singing off the same song sheet that we had to pull our heads in. OK. So, and it was then in December, with tension still high, that the company then announced further changes to working conditions, ordering the uh, members of the Federated Engine Drivers and Firefighters uh, yeah, Union yeah, to change the practice of operating machinery. Yes, that's right. There used to be... Um, uh, on heavy equipment in mine sites, these uh, P&H shovels, uh, they take about a 50-tonne bite each time. OK. Uh, some pretty awful accidents had happened in those work sites, so the, the general practice was you'd have one person operating the shovel and you'd have an observer keeping a sharp lookout for 
light vehicles okay. and personnel, etc., that may get in the way. Uh, they deemed you didn't need two people on the job. Uh, they're probably correct, you didn't need them, but, uh, but if you didn't have someone looking out, there was a chance you'd kill people. Okay. We took a different view to that. The workers took a different view to that. They withdrew their labour and uh, and the Royal Barney erupted out over that. OK, how long did the workers stand on the picket line in uh, this second phase of the dispute? Um, oh, um, my memory's a bit sketchy on that, but we were out for some considerable period of time. At the, time the dispute started in Panawanica and I know that it, uh, it, it extended to Cape Lambert okay. and, uh, and, you know, both, both sites basically pulled the pin. Uh, and, and it was, uh, it was a fairly vicious sort of a blue because uh, you had uh, a scab workforce operating with staff and other people were being escorted on site in armoured vehicles. Okay. Uh, they had uh, XSAS um, security staff employed. Um, yeah, it's a, it was a pretty tough time. And that's all we have time for on Rank and File Radio this week. Tune in next week for the final part of the extended interview with Graham Haynes on the Robe River dispute, where Graham will discuss the outcome to the bitter Robe River dispute. Tune in next Saturday morning at 8am on Community Radio 3CR. Very interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and it has such a huge impact we don't realise on industrial relations and the working class movement today. Yeah, it's also, you know, the normalisation of uh, use of SAS-trained security against the working class. Yeah, and the rise of the new right. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim on this Saturday morning. And uh, if you're listening uh, podcast... uh, then uh, I'm just giving you some time and place. You know, they say that when you're on radio or on mass media in in general, you should not locate yourself. Oh, really? Yeah, because... uh, It could be any time and place. It could be any time and place. (laughs) This is getting very existential. (laughs) Um, But there are things that are happening that require you to know time and place, aren't there? Today, there's actually a, a group of people coming together around the Greek issue. Yes, there's a rally in solidarity with the Greek people, which is starting at one o'clock at the Parliament of Victoria. And it's to stand in solidarity with the Greek people who have been absolutely crippled by austerity austerity for the past five years, are being threatened by the whole European establishment and are going to have their big vote tomorrow. Uh, so it's yes or no for the memorandum. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it, the, the stuff that's happening in uh, Greece really reveals how the mainstream media is in the thrall of uh, the uh, capitalist class. It's quite fascinating because it's represented that it will be the end of Greece. Well, actually, the media is saying this is... Well, they're towing the line of the European establishment that this is a vote uh, in the euro or out of the euro, which is not actually what the vote is. Is about. It's about it's about austerity and class, but they're trying to scare the Greek people into uh, voting for the memorandum. Or you could say that that is the thing that's of interest to that uh, uh, elite. Yeah, I mean, they're framing the the question. They're framing the question, uh, just as uh, it, uh, generally speaking, 
the line that uh, the reason for why the Greeks are in the position they're in is because they didn't pay their taxes, which is fascinating. That still floats up to the surface like a piece of poo. Oh, I know. It's incredible. Also, the stuff about lazy Greek workers are actually, if you look at all the statistics, they've been one of the hardest working um, section of workers in the whole of Europe for a long time before the crisis as well. God, that's racist, isn't mm, it? It is. I think it is. It's, certain, it's almost becoming racist. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> Outrageous. Uh, but there's also the, uh, oh, there's something else, uh, the July 18th a rally that's coming up. Our own racists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Great segue there. Yeah. Um, but that's happening, I think it's beginning at um, 10 o'clock. Yeah, I know. It keeps changing uh, because it's in reaction to what's been uh, put out by Reclaim Australia. The uh, uh, This is a counter rally to a rally that's been pull, uh, called by... Reclaim Australia, which is uh, basically a xenophobic uh, group of people who uh, want to uh, scare the shit out of people, I guess. Yes, and ironically, Reclaim Australia for the well, not black the Aboriginal people. people. No. <laughs> no, I don't think the First Nations are involved. But that's um, going to be at ten o'clock, and again at the Parliament of Victoria. So if people need to stick around for the whole day, so that we can really. Um, Make sure that shut these people down, I think. Yeah, that's July the 18th. Okay, so there's one today. Do you know what time it is today? One o'clock. One o'clock, yeah. Sorry, I, I was half asleep there and I didn't take it in, um, into account. You'll be awake number. by one o'clock. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's a lot of action going on. Uh, you can prepare yourself for the uh, July the 18th uh, rally and uh, the... Uh, other, you can um, pack a lunch today and uh, go and um, uh, join groups of people and maybe have discussions with others about what's actually going on in Greece and what it is that uh, effects it might have in the uh, general future uh, for the uh, fight for a new and better world. Now, f because we're part of the fight for a new and better world and we still haven't made our target, uh, for Radiothon, and thank you very much for all those people who did contribute. Um, I'll give you a little reminder that it's not too late. Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual Radiothon. We still need your support, and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 94198377 or donate online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and now we're going off to Kevin's roundup of This Is The Week That Was. A week, Solidarity Bricky Team listener, went under our humane policy of giving people smugglers and no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people a can of petrol and a wave goodbye, the Socialist Party does display decency when decency is required. It is being urged by sensible, responsible socialists like Joel Fitzgabble and Shadow Minister Richard Moore's refugees to agree with the government that we should hand them a can of petrol and a wave, but Joel and Richard and the majority who support them point out there is a major difference between the government and the socialists. We wave them goodbye with compassion. Joel and Richard were all humanity. 
and I'm sure as a compromise to even more compassionate decency, they would be prepared at a stretch to give them two cans of petrol. In a lengthy interview I heard with Richard, the small fact that there are real human beings on this boat didn't rate a mention, but they didn't rate were ignored compassionately because we know that only unions are evil, which the government knows only too well, so much so it was forced to appoint a multi-billion each Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission to save Trublawazi from this evil, all that massive expense caused by the unions being so evil, which brings us to union super funds, which have evil union appointments as directors, and due to our concern and the government's deep, deep concern that union-run super funds were outperforming, to use the industry jargon, outperforming bank and other caring employer-run funds, the government has to step in to get evil unions out of looking after their members' money and hand it over to the being outperformed independent experts. So, Josh, we asked the Minister for stepping, uh, stopping evil union rorts, Josh Fry, then burn unions. Uh, if the union-run funds are outperforming the banks and big investment funds, uh, what's the problem? This is a typical even u- evil union example of class war where there is no class war. They are going out of their way trying to expose capitalism, to expose the greatest little economic order of them all as incompetent. This is no more than a socialist plot. Dear me, I didn't know it was that serious. Thank goodness there's no such thing as a capitalist plot. You, you want independent directors on these boards. Yes, yes, independent. Right, right, and to chair these boards. So I imagine a union person not involved with a particular fund or industry could be an independent director and chairperson. Josh. Josh, are you OK? S- sit down, sit down. You, you've gone ashen. I'll be okay, thank you. No, 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 just what you said upset me. No, no, obviously any evil union person cannot be independent. No, the independent directors and chair people must come from the truly independent investment communities, uh, the ones being outperformed. I told you it's a socialist commie plot, but thanks for the question. Even if it did cause a bit of a heart flutter there, I'll, I'll tighten up the legislation to make sure evil unions can't unfall through the cracks. Uh, just finally, Josh, will these independent big, big investment fund appointments you put in to manage workers' money demand huge fees for their services? They will demand a fee appropriate to their abilities and experience. Oh, so they'll do it for free. Don't be silly. Just a little Freudian listener. When I went back over that bit, I typed... Joel, that rabid socialist prepared to give no proper papers, queue jumpers, two cans of petrol, when I met Josh, and I thought, how could one confuse a rabid socialist with a caring business class party junior minister? Sorry, Joel. Our cherished true blue Aussie icon BHP for bloody huge profits defended itself against criticism that its tax practices were not transparent. Our tax avoidance is most transparent, (laughs) it argued. No, only joking, the big true blue Aussie wouldn't dream of tax avoidance of tax dodging. Thanks to tax laws, we don't have to, they laughed on the way to the bank. A globally competitive tax system, and presumably we are not globally competitive, which is why they have to divert their profits to Singapore and places beyond, is necessary for bloody huge profits to help sustain true blue Aussie living standards, which seems to be its prime concern. 
we are quite capable of caring about sustaining true Blue Aussie living standards without making any contribution toward them, it explained. No ultra-expense of Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga mission with carefully chosen hanging judges and crown prosecutors needed into that one or into workers being inadvertently short-changed because we know all evil lies with unions and workers and obviously evil unions have used their mafia connections to set up innocent, caring, business-class party responsible people like poor, innocent Amanda Millstone, that left-of-left ABC commentator who last week was directing us to the sensible centre. But, but obviously the sensible centre needs to move further to the centre to get away from the evil unions, although maybe the mafia have discovered just where the sensible centre is, which, which is obviously wherever poor Amanda is. But no need for a Kanga mission into that connection either. As the ABC keeps telling us, it was practising freedom of speech, then keeps telling us it was wrong to practise freedom of speech. It has appointed an independent review to find that it was wrong to practice free speech, guaranteed with the appointment of that renowned independent Ray Mortine. So called, of course, because of all the sprays he has given over the years to anyone or any thought remotely to the left of his former Master Lord Kerry of Waterhouse. See, the ABC is not really independent, for goodness sake. It allows those who have a different point of view at occasional oh, so occasional, but occasional voice, whereas Ray Mortine is the very essence of independence, as defined by Tiny and Team Trublawazi and Lord Rupert and the late Lord Kerry. Or as Lord Rupert's highly intelligent, deep-thinking lackey at the Trublawazi trade-in with the big red Trublawazi up the top, Paul Killy the left, told the ABC it must give more thought to whom it gives a voice, allows to be heard. That is true independence, Lord Rupert style, Paul explained, or we might say admitted. Wonder if that has anything to do with the difficulty progressive causes. Well, any cause or thought, again, remotely to the left of Lord Rupert and his accommodating lackey Paul, for instance, have of getting any positive coverage in the responsible independent media like Lord Rupert Stable. Not that they don't get a mention, it's just that any mention is accompanied by a string of pejorative adjectives and screaming headlines. Hang on, I take all that back. Lord Rupert's even more deep-thinking, even more highly intelligent lackey columnist bolt through the head says Ray Mortine is yet another ABC commie lefty appointment. My word, Ray Mortine has certainly learned to hide his commie lefty bits under a bushel of Lord Kerry politics. We'd never have known. The conversion on the road to award to Lord Rupert's former number one true blue Aussie lackey, Josh John No Heart Again, who has apparently found his heart again. We all recall John time after time defending Lord Rupert against unfair attacks over, well, over all those issues over which Lord Rupert gets unfairly attacked, like hacking phones and the odd alleged bias and not paying taxes and other normal business practice. practices. Well, cop this quote, direct real quote. Tiny a bit more for the bosses has bloody mightedly kowtowed to media mates Lord Rupert and Kerry Stacks the Profits by rolling Malcolm Tun of Bull's push to unwind media ownership rules which would have enabled regional networks to survive. John Nohart uh, attacking Lord Rupert?
John, why aren't you defending it? You've always defended him. Well, obviously, I'm now big supremo of a regional network. Oh, so if you were still its number one lackey, or Lord Rupert's number one lackey, you'd say Tiny has done the right thing, opposing Malcolm kowtowing to regional networks. Look, I will not defend a ruthless, filthy, rich autocrat. When I did, I was just doing my job. Uh, but, but what about principle? I love principle. Lots and lots of principle. And lots and lots of interest on principle. Oh, you mean capital money principle. Uh, what other sort is there? Well, no money involved, but, uh, John, your, your award is on the way. In the home of democracy, Greek voters are about to learn what happens when you abuse democracy and don't vote for the sensible centre. With the International Monetary Profits Fund's Christine Lagarde, the wealthy, repeating from last week, you can't have meaningful dialogue with people who don't do what you order them to do. As the Greek people's shaking hands poise over the ballot papers tomorrow, they'll have to weigh up the big choices. We must choose death on the one hand, or on the other hand, uh, uh, oh, death. Finally, with that phrase, and having mentioned the late and sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, thought we'd wind up with one of our regular bad Lord Kerry jokes from years back. Uh, they, they say there's only two certainties in life. Death and, uh, death and, uh, death and, uh, Christ, what's the other one? Good morning. Now listen, the annual Green Left Weekly comedy debate is back again for 2015. Two crack teams will debate the proposition that Tony Abbott is the root of all evil. Featuring Kirsty Mack, LEMC, the Minister for Un-Australian Affairs, Morveen Smith, Evan Thompson and Simon Crick, it's a titanic struggle for global comic debating supremacy. Refereed by me, uh, Rod Quantock. I remembered. Friday 24th of July at the Brunswick Town Hall, dinner and bar from 6.30, comedy at 8pm. For bookings, phone 96398622. I'll read that again, but backwards. 22689369. Supporting the radical news source, Green Left Weekly. It's the best comedy debate in the world. See you there. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. And you have just, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. What have you found out, Kim? Well, according to Twitter, uh, which could never be wrong, but apparently there's been the largest rally, well, they're calling it the largest rally in Greece's history, bigger than 74, um, which I assume was under the military yeah. um, dictatorship. Uh, so incredible scenes in Greece at the moment. So exciting. Yeah. Well, we uh, had, I caught up with uh, Dr. Noah Bazil, and he, of course, wanted to talk about Greece. Well, I think the, for me the, the clearest thing that's come out is that regardless of what the um, commentators and the powerful central banks and the IMF and others are saying, uh, about this being about economic uh, well-being and so forth, it really is, and the future of the EU. It's become clearer and clearer. This is really about the um, the creditors and uh, ensuring that those that have uh, have investments, uh, investments debt in Greece, uh, will get paid back. And I think that's the really that's the subtext here and. I guess whatever happens, and it's really hard to know which way the Greeks will vote on on Sunday. It looks like it's neck and neck, and uh, and of course there's been a huge campaign 
run by uh, groups, especially political parties, who want to see Greece bound by the agreements with the uh, European Central Bank and the IMF for a uh, vote in support of austerity. Really what's become clearer and clearer is how much of this is really about ensuring the uh, the bankers and the financial institutions get paid back and not about economic growth. Now, it's, it's really interesting because uh, there's this impression that uh, if they were to vote against uh, paying back the, the debt, then the it's very difficult to work out how it could mean the... Uh, end of the world as we know it. So, for example, there was a very interesting thing on Facebook which shows a picture of the Greek government after the Second World War signing off on a statement that they will uh, halve German debt at the time. absolutely. I mean, you know, debt's a... a, a, I mean, debt is a, a... largely a fabrication like a lot of economics uh you know there's a there's no correlation between debt and uh the real economy really i mean i you know i'm not an economist but i've read enough on this from people who are who suggest that uh that you know and we've seen it before in other examples where debt is forgiven uh that uh the economic uh, situation carries on Really, I mean, debt, debt is unproductive. I mean, Africa and many other parts of the um, of the third world have, or former third world, the sort of non-European. Yeah, no, it's a construct, world. isn't it? Isn't it? It's a construct that the third world. Yes, it is uh, absolutely, and we don't use the term very much anymore. But you know, all those countries that are in the global south or were former colonies. You know, they've been hamstrung by debt for the best part of 40 years uh, since the 1970s and the early 1980s. It's had a huge cost in those parts of the world in terms of health care, education, uh, living standards. And, you know, in, in a number of ways, what we're seeing in places like Greece and Spain and Italy and Ireland, Portugal, a whole range of other countries is that phenomenon coming back to the global north. I think there's been very few examples in the global south of countries that have had the capacity or the willingness to stand up to the IMF and the uh, global markets. But Greece might be uh, the the sort of commencement of a real stand, sort of stand off for a a willingness to to confront this, this really insane and, and quite inhumane project that's been going on for a long time. Countries to sell off their assets, restructure their economy. Um, and basically to the benefit of the uh, the big end of town, effectively. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, what we've seen over the last 40 years is a huge accumulation of wealth at the top of the, uh, you know, at, right at the top. Um, and... Um, a huge impoverishment of a uh, vast majority of people around the world. I think, Noah, that, that in a funny kind of a way, the household economy, small household economies, is being confused with overall government, uh, country economies? Um, I think, um, I guess, to some extent, you know, governments and countries don't work like... You know, household economies. Household economies, or like firms. 
I mean, that's been the other uh, sort of um, uh, comparison. Countries work very differently, especially in a global environment where uh, countries are trading with each other and where the goods that are being traded are, um, are variable, have variable uh, uh, values. I mean, one of the things that's really tied a lot of developing countries to the global north in a very uh, sort of uh, dependent or um, un unfair uh, system is that they often produce goods that have a much lower value than those that, that are produced in the, in the more highly developed countries. And so if you're producing raw materials or mining or whatever it might be, and Australia is a country that's gone down this path to some extent, even though they're a little bit different because we have a large financial and service um, economy as well, or sectors of the economy. But many of those uh, other countries uh, haven't, haven't been able to develop uh, those sectors, and therefore they're selling uh, low-value goods to, to wealthy countries in return for high-value goods, and that's always going to lead to um, inequality and to trade deficits and that's been the you know that's been the real tragedy uh, in many ways of the tragedy it's been it's been the reality for many countries that they've had to face this um, um, what dependency theorists in the 1970s called unequal exchange uh, there's really no way to rectify that and one of the projects of the IMF and uh, the World Bank and the US in the 1970s or one key part of the strategy was to deindustrialize poor countries and force them into raw material and, and low production, uh, low cost production, which is uh, the same as uh, exactly the same paradigm as colonialism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, India is a great example. Egypt as well, but India in particular, which when the uh, which was a pretty advanced economy and had a very uh, sort of competitive and and highly skilled. Um, um, textile industry back in the 18th century. Uh, the British came in and forcibly destroyed it and trans, transformed the economy into, a, into producing cotton and other um, low-value goods. Yeah, to, to suit their, their economy. I mean, if we do remember in the 1980s, I think it was, at uh, Malaysia, when there was uh, uh, the big downturn during the 80s, Malaysia refused to buckle under the IMF and it was considered to be uh, an outrageous thing to do. But yeah, they right. survived. Yeah, yeah they, they definitely survived. They, um, they were called recalcitrant, if you remember, yes. by Paul Keating. Uh, well, Mahathir was, um, largely because, you're right, he stood up to the, um, the sort of uh, blueprint that had been uh, put forward to Asian economies. And... Um, you know, uh, China is another example of a country that hasn't played by the rules of the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, neither, uh, neither did Japan after World War II or South Korea, um, even though it was forced into some restructuring after the Asian financial crisis in 1998. I mean, and those countries have done far better than many other countries in the global south um, in the last, you know, 30 years. And we'll see, I think... Uh, what, what we are seeing, I guess, in places in South America as well, is an unwillingness to uh, to buckle entirely to um, to the IMF and World Bank 
Um, World Bank, not so much these days. It's starting, I guess, to, to, to diversify a little bit uh, from being just an American institution. But um, the IMF uh, still the key, um, the key institution for ensuring compliance uh, from different countries to the neoliberal paradigm. I mean, what's quite incredible is the IMF has been at the forefront of the last two years uh, with um, declarations that inequality is one of the major uh, concerns of, the, uh, of this particular era. It's a major issue that the world has to tackle. Christine Lagarde came out last year and, I think, yes, last year, and at Davos, saying that if we don't tackle inequality, we'll, this could have huge negative economic ramifications for the world. Um, and, and they've also come out and said austerity doesn't work. It actually, they've admitted that austerity leads to, um, to doesn't lead to economic growth and is in fact a barrier to economic growth. And yet the prescriptions for Greece are exactly, um, will produce exactly the inequality through austerity that they're saying um, are ineffective and, and problematic. So, I mean, we've got these contradictions that are, you know, very much part of the, um, the way that the whole thing is playing out. I think if Greece holds firm, it could have huge repercussions, and that's why there's so much effort. It's not a fear of, the, uh, of Greece leaving Europe, and it's not a fear that the economy will collapse. It's a fear that if Greece shows the way, other countries will follow my neighbours are Greek and they're an interest straw poll <laughs> yeah. in the sense that they actually, she was born in Australia, but uh, uh, they have ties to Athens. They actually uh, went back to Athens and the husband is actually Greek, right? right? And so they own property in Athens and they have a holiday house and all the rest of it. The two things that they said that were of interest to me, one was uh, the feeling that uh, the government uh, was, um, the Greek government was actually uh, being a bit cowardly by going back to the people to do a poll which I yeah. thought was an interesting way of uh, looking at it. And the other one was that uh, the perception that Greece is a country that is right in the middle of the Mediterranean. This is a land grab, that people want to steal their land, basically. Um, ownership is an issue here. Yeah. Not so much land. It's that, um, that the restructuring of the economy that will follow the bailout will leave more Greek businesses and more Greek um, uh, assets uh, open to purchase by foreign interests, maybe That's right. European interests. And what's the point, therefore, for the Greeks? They'll be impoverished as well as lose assets. It, it's true. I mean, there's, there's a real conundrum here. Uh, it's best summed up in a little aphorism that Mary Robinson, the British Marxist economist, once made, and which Fidel Castro sort of made more uh, sort of famous when um, he said after the fall of the Soviet Union that the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism is not being exploited by capitalism. <laughs> and um, there is a sense here that there is this dilemma for the Greeks that, um, you know, removing themselves from the European economy will have a cost. Um, 
but staying in it may have a greater cost, and that's, the, that's what they're really grappling with. I mean, there's no doubt that the best outcome for Greece at the moment would be what the Greek government at the moment are sort of recommending, and that is an amended timeline for repayment. That's, uh, there is some debt forgiveness, there's restructuring of the debt repayments, and that it leaves Greece open to some cuts, but nowhere near as violent as what is necessary to make the repayments that are being, uh, and to, to sort of not restructure the economy as violently as the uh, European Central Bank and the IMF demand. I mean, that would be the best outcome for Greece, that it would stay in the euro, it would be able to continue to uh, exploit the markets and the opportunities that come with being part of Europe, but at the same time not be forced down the road of that uh, really savage form of uh, neoliberalism. To just say they actually do get kicked out of the uh, euro, they have to go it alone, what would it really mean? It's really hard to say. I mean, I've read a few things. I mean, the thing about Greece is it doesn't have a great deal of liquidity. Um, it's, it, if it does go back to the drachma, it'll probably be very weak. Um, there will be capital flight. Um, a lot of people's savings will be uh, devalued dramatically. So there are costs to the Greek economy. Um, Argentina has gone through something similar, no, but it, it didn't have the same level, I think, of uh, uh, sort of uh, interdependency as Greece, Greece does with Europe. Um, mm, yeah, that's right. It really depends. A lot of it will depend on the wealthiest Greeks and what they decide to do with their money as well. And um, if and and what foreign companies decide to do um, with whatever assets they own, so there's I mean there are, are some uncertainties. I mean I'm no expert on economic on sort of these economic matters. What I'm most interested in is how those in power uh, force a particular ideological project onto people uh, using uh, sort of the, the economic and uh, using economic. Uh, arguments and in this case some of those economic arguments just don't stack up there's a lot of fear being produced to compel uh, or coerce greeks into voting yes and i think the real concern is not so much economic that is as i said at the outset that this will see uh, and, and, uh, and as you suggested and the world the house of cards won't fall down except that there may be a domino effect in terms of what Spain and Italy, uh, Portugal and uh, other countries in Europe might do. And not just there, but throughout the world, there are a number of countries that are heavily indebted that remain tied to a particular economic system that they, that they resent. And uh, we may see other countries say, hang on a sec, if these countries in Europe can stand up to the IMF... Mm, that's and, right then we may be able to as well. Now, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we're in the middle of having a conversation with Noah, Dr Noah Persil from Macquarie University. He's just been talking about the Greek situation, and then we move on to uh, how uh, more of a discussion about the uh, use of fear to um, maintain a capitalist system. And the thing that's really interesting is does tie it to this the role of terrorism as a narrative, the the role of fear as a narrative in maintaining the economic uh, stranglehold of capitalism, really. Oh, indeed. I mean, we're facing it here. Uh, 
Absolutely, with our government putting so much energy into fueling this sense of a terrorist attack and the fear of our borders being overrun by foreign uh, dark people who might be a challenge to our either our values or our uh, Christian sort of ideals and or our ethnic and and uh, racial homogeneity. And Which is a laughable concept, actually. Of course, of course it is, but that's how it's being portrayed, and a lot of Australians. Have very have have agreed now agree with this narrative, or have at least uh, I think bought into the narrative, so that you know we can see it with the um, increasing support for offshore detention and for you know the cruelty and the inhumanity being shown uh, to refugees. Um, you know the, some of the things that have happened over the last few months really just demonstrate in terms of uh, both the um, the bipartisan support in, in between labor and um, and the and the Liberal National Party for or coalition for a, a sort of more draconian policies in terms of border protection um, and also in terms of the terrorism um, and surveillance laws that have been passed or, or are being debated at the moment, well, not really debated, they're, they're going to go through. Um, you know, we have seen a real, uh, genuine attempt to uh, force, to, to undermine some of our most cherished democratic principles, uh, and people are, are hardly speaking up against it. few lone voices in the media who are questioning some of the things, but overall, everyone's just in lockstep here, with um, with this fear mongering, as you said. I mean, we're in a, you know, highly, I think at the moment, there's a highly volatile situation where we could see segments of the Australian population attack another segment of the population in, in near course, or because of the inflammatory language and policies that the government and others in the media who support those policies have been pushing around Muslims, around you know potential terrorist activity here in Australia, and I think it's very dangerous to go down that line. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested also in the um, uh, the uh, shootings at the uh, luxury hotel in Tunisia, mm-hmm. where about 30 uh, English tourists were uh, murdered, effectively. Yeah. Uh, but what interests me about it is as I investigated, is this really strange uh, juxtaposition between a luxury hotel where English people go to enjoy their holidays, which is just next door to Libya, which is being called an ungoverned territory, which has been ungoverned because of NATO airstrikes, etc., etc., and the uh, inflammatory language coming out of... uh, the Prime Minister of England saying that we're directly under attack and we that's why we should be involved in the war against ISIS. It's, it's a strange combination of people uh, having their um, holidays in and expecting that uh, the world will stay the same. He's talking about it's a direct attack on our way of life. I, I don't yeah, really... Well, it is, I mean, he, he, you know, it's interesting. That's a very interesting point. Annie, I mean, the way of life of, of British people is that uh, they take luxury ho- ho- holidays in yeah. 
other parts of the world. I mean, we are the same here, and I've taken the odd luxury holiday myself. But, you know, there is a sense that, you know, the world needs to be safe for our activities. And that's the sort of, you know, that was the George Bush line during the war on terror. Safe for us. Uh, it doesn't matter how unsafe it is for people in other parts of the world. What we need to do is protect ourselves. And that means we protect uh, our, our advantages and our... Uh, and the benefits of being wealthy and, and developed. I've been saying this for some time, and there's an increasing sense that, and I've, I've noticed this in numerous places I've been, that the term that you used earlier, there is a form of neocolonialism where you know, wealthy people, and they're not just Western now because Chinese and Japanese, uh, South Indian. Koreans and others are starting to, and, and, and wealthy people in the southern parts of the world are also benefiting from this, sort of division that we're seeing and we've seen over recent years that, that has sort of uh, widened between the very wealthy in the world and the, and, um, and the rest of the global population. But, you know, people are going around the world and enjoying themselves and in the, the places where they're doing that, one of the real resentments, I think, that in many parts of the world where uh, there is a lot of tourism is that the tourist destinations are no longer locally owned or managed. And this is the form of neocolonialism that I've been noticing. So I went to a, I went to Bali a couple of years ago for a wedding. It became really clear in a couple of places I visited what we have is Western ownership um, of, you know, restaurants, hotels, resorts. Uh, we have Western management of those assets. That is the people who's sort of the management, you know, the people who do, who get, who have the higher paid uh, employment are all foreigners, Australians, Germans, Americans, um, and so forth. And the people doing the menial jobs are all locals, and they're being paid very poorly. There's no career progression. There's no opportunity within the system. And that's a very, I think that's creating a lot of resentment, and I think Australia needs to have a look at how we engage, I mean, because the potential for some blowback from this sort of uh, economic colonialism, I think, um, again, there's potential for this in the future. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism's uh, analysis of uh, re recent figures for civilians killed by U.S. drone attacks in yeah. Yemen. Now, Yemen is uh, obviously on that peninsula on the other side of Tunisia. 2002 to 15, total killed 460 to 681 people from U.S. drones in Yemen. Yeah. That's a lot of people, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, you know, drone attacks are, you know, not just affecting Yemen, they're in Pakistan and other places. Well, yeah, but, Afghanistan. I mean, the thing about U.S. and Western violence in those parts of the world, uh, it's it, it's continuous and it's it's um, and it, it's fueling uh, this Western resentment. Um, I mean, this is the thing about ISIS. ISIS is. You know, these are cruel and inhumane people, but they're, in their view, their cruelty and inhumanity is no greater or worse than the inhumanity and cruelty of uh, Western-backed governments that have repressed their, them for generations and Western intervention uh, in the region. I mean, it was horrific to see uh, people burnt alive or had their throats cut, but it should be equally... Um, horrific for us to see drone attacks, the use of cluster bombs, the 
the fact that we're immune to one type of violence but we're still horrified by others is really, I think, one of the, the, the real issues that we as a society need to uh, also address because uh, clearly in those parts of the world uh, it's all those sorts of violence that are fueling the sort of movements like uh, ISIS and uh, the Al Qaeda in the Maghreb and those sort of groups that are being resp that are responsible for um, for these sort of violent attacks in Tunisia and elsewhere. I just want to make one further point about that. We shouldn't disconnect the willingness of the U.S. government to use violence in in um, Yemen and other parts of the Middle East from the uh, continuing racial violence that has is is very evident now in the U.S. and has always been evident. These are all manifestations of the same Western uh, dominant Western uh, um, um, structures and relations of power that have um, that have created this north-south or white non-white uh, Western non-Western divide over the last two three hundred years. Yeah, well, a point well made, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been nine uh, predominantly black churches across the south of uh, America that's been have been burnt over the last week. Absolutely incredible. You wouldn't know it from the hysteria in our media about anti-terror and the rest of it. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Anyway, that's it. For, it's a wrap. It's the end of Solidarity Breakfast for this week. So have a good week and good luck for the your academic pursuits next week, Kim. Yes, Annie's um, just been witnessing my frantic uh, panicking, um, but no, I'll be fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. Yeah, that's right. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with the fabulous Amy Winehouse. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.